And so that's the formula that we have about how to create value in a company that we buy that is a good company, turn it into a great company, but not just a great company at that point in time, but a company that can continue to sustain and grow its greatness as a public entity. I'm Sarah Williamson, and this is Going Long with FCLT Global. On this show, you'll learn what it means to be long-term from the top minds in global business and investing. Leaders from companies and investment organizations join us to discuss how they are leading their teams for the long run on issues including capital allocation, risk management, climate change, and sustainability. To learn more, visit our website at fcltglobal.org. Today, I welcome Scott Sperling, who is the co-chief executive officer of Thomas H. Lee Partners. Scott's a member of THL's Management and Investment Committee and joined them in 1994. Prior to joining THL, Scott was managing partner of the affiliate of Harvard Management Company that managed alternative assets for Harvard University's endowment fund. Scott is the chairman of Mass General Brigham, the parent of the Harvard Teaching Hospitals, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Brigham and Women's Hospital, as well as a number of other leading specialty and community hospitals and physicians practice groups. So Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sarah. Pleasure to be here. Great. So at FCLT Global, you know, obviously our mission is to focus capital on the long term to support a sustainable and prosperous economy. And we think that governance is a key driver to that long-term value creation. Um, You've been involved in governance at Mass General Brigham, at the portfolio companies that you invest in, um, and at THL itself. Can you share with us some of the lessons you've learned in terms of using governance and perhaps those different kinds of governance to create long-term value um, in a range of situations? Sure, happy to. And uh, I've had the benefit and uh, maybe... (laughs) As I get older and older, not, not so much a benefit, but the reality that I've been doing this for over 40 years. So I've seen a lot of companies uh, and have been able to participate with some really extraordinary uh, individuals in building some great companies. I've seen some really difficult situations, uh, both in the for-profit and in the not-for-profit area. So one of the things I've learned over the decades is that successful companies or organizations have a clear alignment of governance, strategy, management structure, culture, and perhaps most importantly, as a governing board, making sure that you have the right people in the right jobs. And when I say right people in the right jobs, I'm talking about individuals who not just, who have both the capability, but they are also fully aligned and will uh, drive evolution in the strategy, in the structure of that organization, and who are appropriately incented. One of the key elements for these individuals is, is really the the, the care of all the other uh, people who make these organizations work. And that includes culture as well as compensation. So that's a really critical element of what I believe governing boards are responsible for. Management teams, when you have the right people, they kind of take it from there. And you hope that your job as a governing board is to ensure that they can do their job, that you can continue to protect all of these elements in ways that allow great managers, great uh, people to do the work that they're dedicated to doing. And that you have in fact aligned all of these elements, again, strategy, structure, incentives, culture, and capability. And if you can continue to ensure that that's the case as a member of a governing board, whether it's at a for-profit company or not-for-profit, 
then the probability that you're doing your job in a way that enables that organization to succeed uh, is quite high. And where do you find the biggest challenge? I like your, um, your, your categories. Is it, is it figuring out the right strategy and having that long-term strategy? Is it finding those right people? I'm sure it varies based on the situation, but as you've thought about, you, you mentioned you've had, you've seen some great companies and great organizations. You've also run into some uh, challenging situations. What, where, 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 when the misalignment comes in, is it, is it timeframes? Is it incentives? Is it wrong folks in the wrong seat? It's often a combination. You know, it's sometimes hard to pinpoint any one element that doesn't work. And a lot of the reason for that is these are very much intertwined elements. So making sure that the mission of the organization, the strategy of the organization, and then the capability and organization of the people um, is all going in the same direction and not fighting against each other is um, one of the areas that we really work very hard to ensure because it's in that internal uh, collision of those elements that you often see the seeds of difficult situations or failures. One of the things that we like about uh, to instill in organizations uh, from a governing board perspective and want to make sure that we have managements um, where the individuals actually believe this and internalize this is the idea of continual improvement. And continual improvement means that you take a strategy, but you know that you sometimes need to evolve it to changing conditions. And we do live in very dynamic times. We know that for the last 20 years, uh, technology has forced changes in business models that in some cases are small, but in most cases actually are quite significant. And those business model changes often require an evolution of how you go to market, an evolution in the nature of the product that you're providing, the way that you deal with customers, the ability to drive a cost structure that allows that business model to succeed. So, you know, there's a lot that goes on and it's really making sure that all of these elements are working together and going in the right direction that I think is the uh, most important element of being a member of a governing board. And you mentioned incentives um, and the importance of incentives and the alignment of that with the strategy, with the structure. Um, the you know obviously the um, the research uh, is clear that um, incentives are critical to maintaining a long term focus and building value over time. But how you motivate you know a, a, a doctor or a researcher at a hospital is, is I'm sure very different than the COO of a CEO of a company or a, you know, or a private equity investor. So how do you think about what makes a, you know, what motivates people in very different situations and how do you match those long-term incentives um, with what those individuals really care about? So you're raising a very good point. There is no one size fits all to use a very, almost a hackneyed phrase but it really is true. And there are categories of organizations. Again, we lump the world often into for-profit and not-for-profit, but even within each of those categories, there are individuals who are motivated uh, not just by uh, money, if you will, but also by the need to succeed, the need to help other people, the need to establish an organization that will have a legacy that outlives them. 
And those are the kinds of folks that we're looking for and we're trying to develop incentive systems to compensate. And so it is true that um, a, the CEO of a, of a for-profit company that we've invested in, they're going to be driven in our experience mostly by the ability to accumulate significant wealth through their stock ownership or equity ownership of a company. They're really in it uh, from a financial perspective for a long-term payoff, not for an annual uh, bonus payment. And so we design uh, incentive compensation systems around that. Now, again, I will mention that in our experience, the great CEOs of uh, even the for-profit companies are not just driven by their compensation. They are driven by a, um, uh, a need to succeed, a need to accomplish and build something great. And uh, making sure that that is part of the incentive system, the ability to allow them to accomplish that objective, the ability to see some level of recognition, if that's important to them, are also important elements of compensation. Now, if you take something like Mass General Brigham, clearly, you know, there are levels of market compensation that we just have to provide. And those continue to go up, particularly in this inflationary environment. And that's true for nurses for our docs, for allied health professionals, but it's also true for the thousands and thousands of people who enable our clinicians and researchers to do their job. So the people who are working in those kitchens, the people who are making sure that we achieve the level of cleanliness that is so uh, importantly required uh, in a, um, a healthcare setting, the people who make sure the equipment is maintained and when a truckload comes in, uh, everything that's supposed to go to a certain place goes to that place. And those are thousands of people. And for most of them, they want to be part of a great organization, particularly one like Mass General Brigham, that has uh, a, uh, a quartet of missions that are crucially important that I can talk about in a little while, but also that they feel that they're being paid appropriately relative to others um, uh, who have similar jobs. And again, the, the, the level of that, uh, particularly in this environment, continues to go up higher and higher. Um, and we need to be responsive to those sorts of things, which again, means that we have to look at how we balance longer term incentives that are important for those individuals that are both uh, pecuniary and non-pecuniary, but also making sure that we are appropriately fair and providing them a living wage uh, and uh, an appropriately competitive uh, wage in the near term. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I, my understanding is that Mass General Brigham is the biggest employer in Massachusetts. So it's an interesting situation to be um, both a nonprofit and the, and the biggest employer in town. So um, yeah. The- it, it certainly, I will tell you, it certainly is. Luckily, we have people like Ann Klebanski, who is our in, uh, incredible CEO uh, was an incredible clinician and researcher, but uh, has really risen uh, uh, perhaps to her highest and best use as the CEO of this incredibly complex and large organization, or Ron Walls, our COO, head of clinical operations across the system, who also was one of the world's uh, great clinicians as head of emergency medicine uh, at the Brigham and COO there. Um, we, ha- we just have some phenomenal people uh, across the system who both come from a medical background uh, uh, or people like Neem Gandhi, our CFO, who had been the CFO head of uh, population health at Mount Sinai 
uh, really is a great thinker about how to do things in ways that allow us to continue to achieve and sustain the greatness of our clinical mission, which is to be you know, the greatest provider of high-end healthcare uh, in the world, our research mission, where we're far and away the largest research uh, organization, the largest uh, research organization amongst all AMCs around the world, uh, academic medical centers or hospital systems, uh, the really important teaching element that we have. You know, it was interesting to learn that the Mass General and the Brigham together have trained over 50% of the chiefs and chairs of the different specialties and service lines at, a at all the AMCs in North America. And then the very important community mission where we spend hundreds of millions of dollars trying to support the individuals in need uh, in communities that are most endangered. You could argue something the Commonwealth, the state should be doing, but you know, we, we have people who appropriately feel that that's an, an incredibly important and equal part of the, the missions uh, that we have. And we try to do all of that in a world where for all the great things that we do, the reality is very few people really wanna pay for those services. Uh, the government, doesn't, uh, others uh, uh, don't. So the nature of the business model there is uh, incredibly challenging. Luckily, in most of our, um, the companies that we own at THL and most of the other companies I've been involved with on the profit side, what is pretty clear is that we're trying to build great organizations where all of the stakeholders win. And sometimes there's some trade-offs there clearly but we're trying to do that in a way that allows those organizations uh, to uh, uh, be in the stream of great business models, to be in places where there are strong secular growth drivers, to create organizations with incredibly talented people who again, are all aligned on strategy, culture, structure, and have them push forward. Uh, it's a bit of a simpler task, I will have to admit, than, uh, than uh, what I've seen in my years as a uh, chair of Mass General Brigham and before that chair of the board at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Well, it's, it's, it's the things, of course, that we've done a lot of work on is this idea of stakeholders or stakeholder or capitalism or whatever we want to call it. There's often this mindset of trade-offs between, you know, do you, do you treat your employees well or do you, um, do you worry about the environment or do you worry about your shareholders or whatever? And I think that what we've been trying to do is, is really change some of that narrative to how do you invest in stakeholders? You know, how do you invest in your employees so that you, you get the, the, um, that, that they all win, like you, like you just said, that, that, that they're, they're aligned. So how do you get your management teams of a portfolio company or your LPs to, to really think about that investing in whether it's the customer or the community or the employees or whoever is important, um, do you, do you think about that as a trade-off? Do you think about that as a long-term investment? How, how would you sort of define this stakeholder capitalism mindset? We think of it as an incredibly important long-term investment. And at THL, we talk a lot about that, about the need to invest uh, heavily in long-term growth of our enterprises, the ability to succeed financially, but how that's really tied in to all of our uh, people succeeding and feeling like they succeed and are being rewarded financially for that success over the long-term uh, and doing what we need to do in the near term to invest in our people uh, and the uh, organizations that, that we're lucky to be an owner of. Um, 
we also believe that uh, the philosophy of investing in our people is a really strong basis for a, a culture of respect and investment in our customers and in our communities. So you really have to make sure that your own people feel all of that, uh, that respect uh, for them as an individual, that they are part of a team that again is moving forward um, in, in the same direction. Um, and when they feel that it becomes much easier longer term for them to convey that same, that same feeling, that same culture and apply it to all of our customers and the way we treat our customers uh, and our um, uh, communities. And the community element is one I think um, is growing again after perhaps a few decades of not being seen as important. If you go back to the early days of let's call it capitalist society, most of the large corporate entities and other forms of ownership that existed you know, a couple hundred years ago that we would now call the early days of capitalism, those, those were forms of organization that not just uh, took care of the individual employees, but also helped take care of their families and their communities. And I think that element is something that we've seen return over the course, particularly the last uh, decade, and we think is very important for long-term success of our companies. So there may be some near-term trade-offs. Deciding to pay more certainly will negatively impact the uh, short-term profit of a company. But what we've seen is when you do it in the right way, you're actually building better performance uh, in every aspect, including purely for shareholders who may be most focused um, on the financial results. You are building better long-term financial results by doing what it takes near-term to make sure you're taking care of your people and your community. So that sounds like that is part of your philosophy about how you build that, that long-term value, um, you know, in these, in these middle market um, organizations. And, and it's, you know, it's interesting that even um, we've written about this, that even Milton Friedman talked about investing in communities, you know, sort of the, com the company town of that, of the, of the older days that you talked about and how that, could could pay off. So there's a lot of you know Milton Friedman bashing these days, but even even he recognized the uh, the importance yes. in, in investing in parks and schools and things like that. So that's uh, and you know, as a side note, uh, some of that Milton Friedman bashing on the monetary side may disappear given the the current situation and uh, perhaps his prescience in a number of different ways. <laughs> that's a, that's a fair point. We 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 have to we have to learn from our history so we don't repeat it, right? Um, so, so one thing that I'm curious about is obviously you're investing in private companies and, and keeping them private, um, but at some point they go into, this, many of them may go into the public markets. So how do you think about um, how you build that, that long-term value is sort of in the private phase of a company's life versus the public? And how much do you see um, that change? Is it, is it a... Is it a 180 degree turn? Is it just a small shift? Um, if, you've, if you've seen some of your companies come out into the public market. So let me take a step back. We have committed ourselves to a THL is building a very, very large organization for our industry of people who have expertise in certain sectors, industries, we call them domains, um, who look for the subsectors that we think have strong, sustainable 
secular growth to them. So, you know, real, really, you know, areas that, that we think uh, have the ability to generate 10, 20 years of, um, of extraordinary growth as a, as a possibility, as, a, as, as something that is achievable. Um, and because we're investing in middle market companies um, that often have elements uh, that have been very successful in those areas, but may not have all of the infrastructure, all of the capabilities um, to scale to the next level to um, be able to realize the potential that that sector has in terms of growth and profitability and the ability to take care of their people. Um, we have uh, developed uh, a kind of a, almost a, a dual pillar uh, philosophy. One of have people who have incredible expertise, decades of experience and relationships in those subsectors that we find attractive. And then people who have uh, often decades of experience uh, as operational experts, people who can work with management teams, not to take the place of a CEO, not to shadow the CEO, but to serve as a real resource to the CEO and the senior management in identifying ways that we can improve the key business processes of these companies. And again, one of the things that we want to imbue in these companies philosophically is that idea of continual improvement. And so what we try to do is work, have our experts deploy at these companies, but lead project teams that are made up of company managers, often middle-level managers. And for every one of our people we put in, we often find there are 10 or 20 company managers. So if we have three or four of our experts at a company, we often have 30 or 40 company managers all working on projects that we think improve the key business processes. And again, we're not only trying to do that one time, but we're trying to help train the managements. One of the reasons we get them involved driving this and even middle level managers in how to continue to do this, even when we pull our people out. Now, this is a long-winded way of saying we're trying to work with private companies to get them to the point where not only is everything clicking well in terms of the way that they execute their business model, the implementation of all the key business processes that they have, and the way to make them more effective uh, as a uh, provider of a good or service to their clients and customers, but we're trying to make sure that they're then prepared to do it on their own once they become a public company. And so we spend a lot of time working uh, again with our people, not just to do it, but to train them how to continue to do it. And again, that, that is because of all the work that's been done with these companies as they were private, and then uh, uh, marrying that with a industry sector that continues to have pretty strong tailwinds for a long period of time. And so that's the formula that we have about how to create value of a, uh, in a company that we buy that is a good company, turn it into a great company, but not just a great company at that point in time, but a company that can continue to sustain and grow its greatness as a public entity. So it really is a, it's a growth pattern. It's a trajectory. It's not a, you know, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a U-turn. It's not a pivot when they go public. They're sort of a, um, they, they've been trying, they've been learning to do that over time. Right. It's and it's, so it's, it's not just stripping out costs and saying, gee, EBITDA jumped by 30%. Now let's get a higher you know, price. For it. Uh, it really is evolving, changing, improving the company. Oftentimes we're supplementing or complementing existing management teams. Um, 
so, you know, we're really making sure that this is a company that is built, you know, as a, again, another hacking phrase built to last. Mm-hmm. So, so on, in terms of governance, one of the areas that we've done some work on is um, the diversity of boards and that's impact on long-term performance. And so there's very good evidence in the public markets that having more diverse boards leads to greater long-term performance. Have you found that diversity of governance in the private space leads to that? Or how have you been trying to create the, that diversity in your portfolio companies and in your own organization? Uh, we are big believers and have been for quite a long time. I think even before it's become quite as, um, as had quite the profile um, in building diversity into uh, the boards of our companies, uh, uh, an early emphasis very, a very long time ago on making sure that we did what was necessary to have some form of equality from a gender perspective. Um, and um, over the course of a number of years, really working uh, to make sure that we increase that diversity in other ways, um, you know, particularly in terms of uh, ensuring that we have people of color who may not have had traditional uh, backgrounds that would have surfaced them as board members, uh, but where we um, really make an effort to get uh, these individuals because they are equally talented. Um, uh, there are, you know, so many, uh, you know, truly great uh, and capable people uh, uh, for boards of our companies um, who are not white males. Um, and so we want to make sure that we get full access there. And that, you know, that requires building the networks, doing a lot of work to extend um, the set of relationships that we have to places that may have been different than where we would go uh, for people uh, 30 or 40 years ago. So um, you've mentioned inflation and the pressure that's putting on. What are um, some of the other trends that you are seeing, whether that's either at you know, THL or putting your master general Brigham hat on that you think will change us. I know you, you've done a lot of work in the automation space. That's clearly going to change, but we may, you know, most, most people who, I mean, I think you and I probably remember inflation, but there are a lot of people uh, investing today who don't. So, um, you know, wh- what are the sorts of things that you think are going to be kind of a, a different, a different world and different pressures over the next say five or 10 years than we've had in the past. And then of course, we've also got, um, geopolitical um, issues that we have not um, had to grapple with in the same way in some time. So what's on your radar screen? So uh, you're right, from an inflation perspective, we mostly have uh, professionals who did not live through, um, you know, as I explained to people, my first mortgage, the first mortgage that uh, my wife and I had was 17% interest rate. My first job coming out of business school, which is my first white collar job, um, was uh, um, working for BCG where, you know, everyone expected a 10% salary increase every year. That was just built in. That was part of the wage push inflation uh, that we had. Uh, And for a very long time, we have not seen that. And, you know, there are lots of reasons that I think we're all aware of for that, not the least of which is the expansion of the Fed balance sheet uh, over the last decade and change uh, from a trillion to over $10 trillion uh, and um, the impact that has on the uh, supply and demand of financial assets. 
So, um, you know, there are, there are a lot of things that were offsetting uh, inflation um, in, uh, uh, in this period. Uh, one was obviously the globalization, the movement of uh, manufacturing to much lower cost geographies. Um, that has been reversed and it's been reversed for a lot of good reasons and maybe a couple of not so good reasons. Uh, we have not had any uh, wage uh, push inflation until recently, but that's come back quite strongly. And, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons why we would expect inflation um, may be sustained at higher levels than um, most people who, in, uh, who, who are in the workforce today uh, could imagine. Uh, energy is another area. We clearly need to invest in uh, renewables. Uh, we've seen a lot of progress in bringing down uh, the cost um, uh, of um, solar, wind, uh, we probably need to do more in nuclear, given the evolution of technologies there. But at the same time, we have to recognize that one of the major forces controlling inflation for the last probably two decades, but, but most of the last 15 years, has been our ability to produce a lot more carbon-based energy uh, at much lower costs uh, uh, than we ever imagined. And again, there was a lot of technology that goes into what we call fracking or hydraulic uh, fracturing that opened up um, sources of supply that enabled the United States in particular to have incredibly low cost of energy, but also recognize the fact that that carbon, natural gas, uh, for example, is also a major feedstock in lots and lots of other things uh, like uh, plastics. And so um, we had very powerful anti-inflationary forces and uh, almost every one of them has been reversed. And we're seeing um, uh, a number of uh, fiscal policies that clearly have exacerbated inflation um, as well as regulatory policies that are amplifying inflation. And that is probably not gonna slow down for a while. Um, and so we need to deal with those issues as we look at investing uh, we look at the impact of THL on those sorts of things. Um, we like to invest in businesses that do not tend to be uh, adversely affected as much as many other areas uh, in terms of the sectors that we invest in. That makes sense. Uh, but, you know, look, the reality is if um, this inflationary pressure combined with the actions that the Fed needs to take to deal with the inflationary pressure uh, in terms of significantly higher interest rates, leads to a recession, it's going to affect uh, lots of people and we need to understand that. For places like Mass General Brigham, which again has this multiplicity of missions, all of which are incredibly expensive to implement. You know, the, the, the cost of, of managing, maintaining, uh, repairing and replacing um, uh, the infrastructure of a, of a major uh, tertiary and quaternary care hospital or specialty hospital is just unbelievably enormous. And it cannot be comprom compromised on without having an adverse effect on patient care. And that's something that just can't happen. The cost of being a leader in providing that high-end care, uh, which uh, the Mass General and the Brigham, for example, are the only leapfrog A-rated hospitals in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and it is because of the norm, enormous investment that we make in the quality of our people, uh, but also in the technologies and equipment that we have uh, to um, make sure that people with serious cancers, cardiovascular disease, liver disease, 
um, uh, you name it, uh, have the very best chance, not just of survival, but of uh, survival with a high quality of life. And uh, again, all of that is incredibly expensive. The need to invest heavily uh, in new areas of research uh, that will result in major breakthroughs that not only save lives, but also over a longer period of time be, uh, result in a lower cost to, of medical expense to the entire system because of the ability to, uh, to cure as opposed to just sustain, um, you know, that again is in the billions of dollars. And so um, you know, the cost of doing these things uh, is already very high. And then you add inflation we're probably on our third cycle of wage increases for many of our 85,000 employees uh, at, at Mass General Brigham. Um, uh, and again, it's uh, nurses, allied health professionals, um, some of our docs, uh, but also just many individuals who provide the support services where we had long been committed to providing them um, uh, a defined living wage and now want to make sure that we, you know, again, help them in this time of uh, rapidly rising inflation. So whether you're a one of our portfolio companies or you're a public company that we continue to have ownership in, or you're a not-for-profit like Mass General Brigham, inflation is insidious. It uh, wreaks havoc on your ability to continue to do your job, achieve your missions or mission, depending on the company in ways that are that, that may be consistent with with how you've done things in the past and that's why we need to continually improve to continually look at how we evolve strategies and structures and making sure we have the right people and again that is the key task as i suggested earlier in my view of our governing boards to make sure we're constantly doing that that we don't sit back and let things get out of control before we deal with them yeah, I think that the, the mantra of continuous improvement makes a huge amount of sense. And I think that, you know, what we see time and time again is the best organizations have this long-term strategy. They know who they are. They know what their North Star is. They know what they're trying to do, but they but they change, you know, all the time as, as, as the world changes. It's not a, you know, it's not a set in stone um, plan, uh, whether they're an investor or a company. All right. Well, last question for you, just sort of a blue sky question. If you can imagine that, you know, we walk into uh, Mass General or Brigham in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, what's, what's, what's it going to be like? Are we going to have robots all over the place? Are we going to have, is it going to kind of feel the same way they've been there for, you know, uh, hundreds of years? Is, is it, how, what do you think is going to happen if we walk in in 20 or 30 years? <laughs> Well, my, my, my first comment would be that it's my great hope that most of the people who are walking into those great hospitals actually don't have to walk into those hospitals. We are focused on using technology and the incredible depth and breadth of our specialists and subspecialists to be able to provide care uh, more conveniently and more cost-effectively for people at home, in ambulatory settings, uh, through uh, using telehealth and other digital uh, ways of providing care, of being able to use those technologies, which we're investing tens of millions, actually hundreds of millions of dollars in, uh, uh, to use those technology platforms to try to get to people before they become really sick. And so when you walk into a place like the Mass General Hospital or the Brigham, 
two of the greatest listed as two of the greatest hospitals in the world, the, the focus will be on those procedures and those patients who require very high-end tertiary and quaternary care. Um, and that um, we continue to have the very best people as we currently do uh, with the very best equipment, which we're trying desperately to provide them with uh, in facilities that allow us to treat those patients most effectively uh, and with the um, uh, uh, greatest mind towards not just uh, uh, dealing with their current problem, but curing them of their, of their issues and getting them back into a place um, where um, uh, they can live um, with a high degree, a high quality of life with a high degree of uh, comfort. And so making sure that we continue to invest again heavily in, in the technologies and the capabilities in our um, uh, academic medical centers, the Mass General and the Brigham, but also in our specialty hospitals and behavioral health. McLean is the greatest behavioral health, mental health uh, institution in the country. Um, Spalding Healthcare um, is uh, one of the uh, highest ranked and most effective uh, rehab uh, operations uh, in the world. Uh, Mass Ioneer remains the leader uh, in providing that uh, set of specialties, both in terms of the research and clinical care, and that we continue to use appropriately our great community assets. Um, and one of the things that we've tried to do over the last three years or four years since I be became chair is to look at all of the elements that I talked about earlier. And in fact, had a set of task forces, seven task forces working um, in many cases uh, through the night uh, over the course of a six month period to try to make sure that again, we aligned all of those elements, governance, governance structure, the management structure, uh, the making sure we had the right people, with the right incentives in the right place and making sure we recruited those people also that we can most cost effectively and, and in the most patient friendly, high quality way, provide care. That's really clarifying. So making sure that we used, we had the ability to bring everything together for the first time as a system. Well, there's a lot that goes into that. There's dealing, in fact, with the great legacies of individual hospitals where we need to balance sustaining those great legacies with having them work together as a system to be able to better balance and utilize all of our assets in the way that's best for patients uh, and that's most cost effective. We uh, need to be able to make sure that we get a patient with a certain condition of a certain acuity level in the right spot. Everyone in the Commonwealth wants to go to either the Mass General or the Brigham, regardless of what you have. Um, and we turn away hundreds of patients a day, unfortunately, because those uh, hospitals are running well over 100% capacity utilization. We have patients lined up in hallways. We need more capacity to deal with, with the fact that these people want and appropriately want to come to the greatest hospitals in the country. Uh, but we also have a lot of our patients who um, really don't have to come into uh, the city to go to the Mass General or to the Brigham, but where we can treat them at some of our great community hospitals like the Mass General Brigham in Newton Wellesley or in Salem. Um, where we can treat them at ambulatory settings on an outpatient basis, um, or better yet, we've been investing uh, an enormous amount of effort and money 
in being able to triage patients when they, for example, come into our emergency room in ways where we can provide what we call hospital at home. We can get them back into their home with the right monitoring equipment, with the right uh, uh, professional staff uh, uh, being in, in contact with them, uh, either constantly or in appropriate intervals uh, in ways that allow us to um, have much lower cost ways of dealing with low acuity conditions. And so, you know, again, very long-winded way of saying when you walk into those hospitals in the future, what you're going to see is an ever greater focus on the tertiary and quaternary care, which nobody else can do as well as we do. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for both joining me today on, on this podcast and most importantly, you know, for, for your for your leadership, obviously at THL, but also at Mass General Brigham, all of us around the world benefit from uh, from from the advances there and from um, having it having governed so well. So um, thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Going Long with FCLT Global. Be sure to hit subscribe to get new episodes every other Monday. To learn more, visit our website at fcltglobal.org.